All right. Well, like I said, we're in the middle of a series called Life in the Spirit. And we're looking at how the Holy Spirit empowers us, empowers us to live lives for God and with God. Last week we talked about how it's not just a passive thing, how it's not that we just sit back and wait for the Holy Spirit to do sort of magical, like powerful Harry Potter sort of thing on us. It's not like sitting in an inner tube on a river where you're just passive and the river's doing all the work and you just sort of sit and float. We talked about how the other end of the spectrum, it's also not like rowing where you are given a boat by God, but now you have to do all the work to make it go. But that life in the Spirit is actually more like surfing, where you're not passive, you're having to work and learn and balance and cooperate, but you aren't the source of the power. God sends the power. The Spirit is the power. And so we, as followers of Jesus, are now wave-powered people, people who are empowered by and directed by the Holy Spirit. And today I want to continue our surfing lessons by talking about the role, the, oh, I thought there was a funny picture up. Um, the role, you're just thinking it's funny that we're surfing today in church in Oregon. Um, the role the Spirit plays in helping us change and overcome sin in our lives. Today we're talking about how the Spirit helps us in those places where we struggle. And so let me start by asking you to just reflect for a moment on a place where you need to change. Something in your life that isn't right, that isn't good. A place where God would want you to think or feel or act differently. Maybe it's a weakness or a personality thing or a problem with anger or greed or envy or judgment. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness in your heart, some bitterness that you just can't seem to let go of. Maybe it's a destructive habit or even an addiction, a poor attitude, a place where you just lack discipline. You just can't seem to consistently do what you know you need to do. Or maybe you're actually a person with great discipline and that leads to some other struggles in your life, some feelings of judgment. Or maybe you struggle in relationships. You know, one of the things about me that I want to change and have battled with and tried to change over the years in varying and, you know, fluctuating degrees of success is in the area of procrastination. Did you never feel this way? I, ha I felt like I have, from the very beginning of my life, been sort of hardwired to procrastinate. I cannot remember a day when I didn't feel like procrastination in the face of a task that I did not want to do was an awesome option. Uh, I was that guy in college who was always pulling all-nighters and writing late-night papers and unfortunately did pretty well doing that and so learned some bad habits. I remember as a kid, um, I was in elementary school and we had the science fair. You remember the dreaded science fair? I decided to take on this project that was about photosynthesis and it was dis displaying the impact of sunlight on plants and I had all these plants and they were gonna be exposed to varying levels of sunlight, like a lot of sunlight all the way down to a little to no sunlight and it was going to show the impact and the power of sunlight and photosynthesis and plants. And I remember like it was going to be like over a two-month stretch. You were going to see all this varying sort of degree of impact. But that project, when you wait till a week and a half before it's due, 
doesn't yield the kind of results. It's not the kind of thing you can cram into a night before. So about a week and a half before the project was due, I just remember my mom going into like evasive action, save your mom mode and like buying these high powered lamps that we had. No, seriously, this is, this is some, this is sad stuff. Like high powered lamps on the plants and we had other plants like in the closet and we were like dousing them with like plant poison and pulling leaves off, trying to sort of like, Make it look like, wow, there's huge impact here. And I think I turned that project in and got an A, which just means that we're, I'm a master of deception, which is, again, part of why I have to preach this sermon on the power of the flesh today. At any rate, my parents certainly should have just let me fail. That would have been the good parenting move there. But we've all got things like this in our lives, right? Not just things that we wish were different, but things that don't reflect the person we know that we are supposed to be in Jesus. Things we know that God wants to change in us. And the truth is, sometimes no matter how hard we seem to try, no matter how many goals we set or how many strategies we try to employ, we can't seem to enact lasting change. We feel trapped in certain patterns of behavior. We feel enslaved to our own desires. Paul talks about this very thing in Romans chapter seven. He talks about this frustration with not being able to will himself into life change. I have the desire to do what is good, he says, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Ever feel that way? What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me from this pattern of behavior where I try so hard and yet continue to fail? Some of you have felt this way. Some of you have experienced this very thing where you've tried so hard to kick the habit or start the discipline or cultivate the character. And even with your best effort, you just can't muster up enough power to change. And here's what the Bible says. And this is really the focus of our entire series. Stop trying to change on your own. Stop trying to follow Christ by the power of your own strength. If you truly want victory, if you really want to change, you are going to have to start living not by your own strength and power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, I just say this by way of confession to you. In this series, one thing God has shown me is I'm not very good at that. I tend to oscillate between floating and rowing. And then I float when I get tired, and then I start to row again. I find it very difficult to surf. And I say that to you because I'm guessing that many of you find yourself in the same place. You know, in Romans chapter 8, right after Paul says, I'm a wretched man. Who can rescue me from, from this? He answers his own question in the very next chapter. In Romans 8, verse 2, he says this. He says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. And what Paul is saying here, friends, is that there are two laws, two ways of attempting to live a life that pleases God. 
He says, law number one, way number one is this. You can try your hardest to fight your own sinful temptations, to do the right thing, to have the right attitude, to think the right thoughts. And again, the Bible says this will not work. It's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death because you try and you strive and you achieve and you give it your very best effort, but you are a sinner and you are sinful. So you fall short, you sin, and then you die. It's the law of sin and death. It's the pattern that happens over and over and over again in you and me. So this is the system we're trapped in. What is it that sets us free from this? Well, in this passage, Paul says, it's the law of the spirit of life. It's the power of the Spirit working in you to give you life, the victorious life, a life that honors God, a life that overcomes the temptations that you face in this world. You see, real change, lasting change, the Bible says over and over and over again, only happens through the Spirit. Think of it this way. In physics, we have a law called gravity. You understand gravity, right? Gravity is this. Every object in the universe is attracted to the other objects in the universe. And the two factors that that kind of determine how strong that attraction is are one, the size, the mass of the objects, and two, the proximity you are to that object. And so there's gravity in the earth because the earth is huge, tons of mass. And so we are very strongly attracted to this. This is why very few of you, probably none of you in here can dunk a basketball. It's because of the law of gravity. Any basketball dunkers in here? Anyone in here? Oh, okay. One of the high school boys over here is giving me a little like, well, yeah. Okay, so there's one of you in here that can get 10 feet off the ground and dunk a basketball. I cannot do it. Not anymore anyway. And so that's the law of gravity. We are, we are pulled down. We are constantly being sucked down onto this earth. Now at the same time, We have these enormous airplanes that can fly through the air. And if you're like me, which I'm guessing some of you are, every time you see this happen, every time you're at the airport and you board one of these like giant monstrous machines and it flies off into the sky, you think, how in the world is this possible? This is the largest plane in the world right here. Is the Antonov 225. It has a maximum takeoff weight of greater than 640 tons. This plane can lift 640 tons off the ground and fly it through the sky. That's 128,000 10-pound bowling balls. That's 5,689 Dave Teixeiras. That's 107 elephants, 640 tons just flying through the air. How does this plane overcome the law of gravity and fly? Here's how. Through Through a law more powerful than the law of gravity. Specifically, it's a, it's a law of aerodynamics called the Bernoulli Principle. Check this out. Today, we're doing some physics and some theology. Some of you didn't know this, but I was a physics major in college. I have my undergrad in physics. I don't get to do physics very often. Today, we're doing physics and theology. Overlapped. Amazing. Check this out. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to be so fun. Um, some of you know this. The faster air moves, the less pressure it applies. So in other words, when air moves faster, it applies less pressure down on what it's around than when it's moving slower. This is why, by the way, when you take a piece of paper and you blow on it, it comes up instead of down. 
So your intuition, you would think, would think, why is my breath not pushing it down? But because the air is moving faster over the top, it's less pressure, so it comes up. You see it coming up there? All right, that's pretty cool. That's physics right there. And furthermore, if you look at the shape of an airplane wing, it's shaped in a specific way so that the distance over the top of the wing is longer than the distance underneath. That's why it's curved. It's a longer distance. So it's a shorter distance underneath. And so to cover that longer distance, the air has to move faster, which means what? Less pressure. And so there is lift on the airplane wing. Literally, that's the principle, the law of aerodynamics, the Bernoulli principle that makes airplanes fly. That the air going over the top of the wing is moving faster than the air going underneath the wing, which means less pressure, which results in lift, which means 640 tons can fly through the air. Now, if you understand that, great. If not, here's what you need to know. (laughs) To overcome the law of gravity... Planes tap into this more powerful law of aerodynamics called the Bernoulli principle. Now this matters because what Paul is telling us in our passage today is a very similar thing. He says, to live the Christian life, we must tap into a law more powerful than the law of sin and death. And that law is the law of the spirit of life. And I want to talk about that law today. I want to talk today about what it means to live in the law of the spirit of life. I want to talk about what it it looks like to have power to change. And the first thing we must do to tap into that spirit power is understand freedom differently. If we want to live in the law of the spirit of life, we must understand freedom differently. Freedom, friends... I would argue, is the greatest value in the modern Western world. We are all about freedom. We talk about freedom. We sing about freedom. We shoot fireworks off for freedom. But the problem is this. We don't really understand freedom. See, our world tells us that we are free when we can do whatever we want to do. But the problem with that is this. When we do whatever we want to do, sometimes what we do and the desires it starts to create in us take over in our lives and now we are no longer free to do whatever we want to do. In fact, the very thing that we want to do begins to trap us and enslave us and so now we are no longer free. Freedom actually results in a reducing of our freedom. Paul, in Galatians 5, in a very famous passage, talks about this very thing. He's talking about the life in the Spirit, and he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't use your freedom to engage things that are going to enslave you. They're going to take your freedom right back away from you. See, what Paul understands, and what the Bible says, is that a better definition, a biblical definition for freedom isn't just, I can do whatever I want to do. A biblical definition of freedom answers this question. When can I fully be who I was created to be? When can I live in fully into the potential and life that I was created to have? A while back in a sermon, I used the example of a fish. You remember this? You don't. You don't listen that well. Great. 
That's real encouraging, guys. No, I'm just kidding. I used the example of a fish. It was a while back. And the question was this. When is a fish free? Is a fish free when it can go wherever it wants? When it's sitting next to you on the sofa, just lying there, like gasping for breath? Or, or is a fish free when it's in the ocean where it was created to be? Where is a fish more free? You see, friends, there is a part of you called the will. Every single one of us has a will. And your will is where you decide things. Your will is where you determine actions and attitudes and behaviors and responses. And here's the thing about your will, the place where you make decisions, the part of you that determines the actions and behaviors of your life. Here's the thing about it. It was designed, it was created to be aligned with God's will. That's how it was made. That's how it was designed. That's when I would argue it is free. You see, the world will tell you that you're free when you can do whatever you want, when your will is unimpeded. But the Bible says, no, you are actually free when your will is submitted to and surrendered to the will of the Father. Because that's when you're functioning the way you were meant to function. That's when you are like a fish in the ocean, when your will is aligned with God's will. You see, we see this in Jesus all the time, don't we? Just over and over again. He's constantly saying things like, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. See, even Jesus says, I surrender my will, my choices, my decisions and attitudes and actions and behaviors and the direction and course of my life to God's will. Remember when he's in the garden, what does he pray? Lord, is there any other way? And yet not my will, but Father, your will be done. He says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, we talked at the beginning of the series how Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to live the Spirit-led life. In other words, we will find freedom when we are like Jesus, when we align our behaviors and actions and choices with God's will for us in the same way Jesus did. So to walk in the Spirit, friends, we must understand freedom differently. We must reject this idea that freedom, to truly be free, means I can do whatever I want. To truly be free means I am who I was created to be, that my will is lined up with the will of the Father. Next, we must not only understand freedom differently, we must engage our desires intentionally. This is Galatians chapter 5. This is Paul. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not able to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, part of you is your will, that part of you that makes decisions and choices and determines actions. But underneath your will, behind your will, sort of driving your will, is this thing called your desires. 
In other words, you make decisions and choices in alignment with your desires. Your will follows the lead of your desires. Desires play out into and onto and through your will. You will make decisions and choices in alignment with your strongest desires. But here's the problem. We have warring desires. The Bible talks about this constantly. We have good desires and we have bad desires. And by the way, the biblical word for desires, desires that are bad, desires that are tainted by sin, desires that move us away from God and his will for our lives, those desires are called the flesh. The flesh. You see, the flesh in the Bible is not your body. It's not just like my body. That's not the flesh. Sinful desires that live in me and want to move me away from God and the person he wants me to be, that's the flesh. And here's the thing about desires. Good or bad, they eventually shape our will. Eventually, your will will come into alignment with your desires. Our strongest desires will play out in our actions and choices and decisions over the long haul. Now, in the short run, you might be able to sort of suppress. Your will can, for a time, hold off or push back your strongest desires. Keep them at bay. Like if we desire something bad, all of you have desired something bad. You've wanted something you knew you were not supposed to want. Let's say it's a, you're on a diet and it's cheesecake and it's sitting there and it's calling your name and you really want it, but you can decide at least for a season or for a time not to eat it, not to act on that desire because we know we can muster up enough strength just to hold back that desire. We call this what? Willpower. It's the power of my will to suppress my desires. And you can do that for a season and for a time. Some of us can do it for a long time, depending on the issue or the thing we're trying to suppress. Some of us can only do it for a short time. Here's my guess. All of us in this room have places in our lives where we have wonderful willpower. There's some things that you're, you just have, you can fight and you, can, you are strong. But then there's some places where your willpower, if you're honest, is sketchy at best, and you can't fight your desires for very long. Eventually, your strongest desires will direct your will. Let me give you a personal example of this. Sometimes I'll go on a diet. I'll try and cut calories and lose a few pounds. Anyone relate to this kind of a pattern of action? And what I'll do is I'll decide to sort of will myself forward towards some weight loss. Like just by sheer willpower, I am going to lose, you know, 10 pounds before the summer or however that goes. And I'll decide just to suppress my desire, my desire for good, tasty, fulfilling, satisfying food. And I'll just push those desires back by sheer willpower. And in general, this will go pretty well for a while. It'll go good, you know, for most of the day. All day long, I will suppress my desires until about seven at night, maybe eight. Then, all of a sudden, in a fit of hunger, I'll find myself rummaging through the cupboards for some chips or the peanut butter 
or cheese and crackers. Way too many. I love me some cheese and crackers. And finally, by about 10 o'clock at night, after I've gorged myself on all these salty things, and I'm staring into my freezer looking at the mint chip ice cream, this thought will run through my head. You know what? I've already blown it today. I'm already way over my calorie count. So what's the big deal? I'm going in for the ice cream. That's when I grab the carton and one of those real long spoons and head to bed. You laugh, but you've been there. Social scientists, scientists actually have a term for this. They have a term for this effect. What happens when we sort of use our willpower to suppress our desires and at some point it just sort of breaks free. Do you know what they call them? Do you know what the actual technical term is for that moment? The hell with it. <laughs> no, seriously, that's the real term. That's what social scientists call that moment where your will can no longer stand and hold back the, the overwhelming strong desire of your heart and it just the dam just breaks free and then you just go with it. It's called the hell with it. And you've been in that place before. I can only say those words in the pulpit because it's a technical term. You can look it up. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there, haven't you? Maybe with food or maybe with something else. Maybe with alcohol, or drugs, or sexual stuff. Maybe some things on the internet, or a pattern of thinking, or gossip. And here's the point. This is not a sermon about willpower. This is not a series about behavior change. This is not even a sermon about the spirit changing your behavior This is all about allowing the Spirit to go deeper and change your desires, to change the desires of your heart that then in turn will change and shape your behaviors. This is about saying, I want the strongest desires of my life to not be the desires of my flesh, the desires shaped by sin and selfishness. Instead, I want the strongest desires of my life to be desires of the Spirit. Desires that honor and glorify Jesus and advance his kingdom in this world. You know, there's a European writer who was actually a Presbyterian guy and he wrote a great story about this very thing, about this very battle. It's the story of a character who was a doctor and he was a doctor in the Victorian era when doctors were very highly respected and so he had this need to maintain his image as a good, noble, righteous, upstanding person. But there was also this other person inside of him, these other desires in him that that wanted to go and, and act on and be someone else, someone who pursued greed and selfish ambition and anger and pride and lust and resentment and revenge. And this, this guy, this doctor, he could not let that person be seen by other people. But he was so tired of warring with himself. He was so tired of holding those desires back that one day he developed a little potion. And when he would drink this potion, he would become this other man, this alter ego. He would actually become this person who was free to pursue all the desires of the flesh. Selfishness and greed and lust and power, all those things just freely flowing through his life. 
Funny thing is that as he names this other character, he can't be a doctor because, again, doctors are honorable. This other guy, he has to be a mister. And then his last name is also real interesting because what are you tempted to do with the desires and parts of you that are sinful and selfish and broken? What are you tempted to do with those things? You want to hide them. So he names this guy, of course, Mr. Hyde. Some of you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a story about the very things we're discussing today. And if you recall, at the end of the story, Dr. Jekyll, he gets tired of these outbursts of sin and selfishness. And so one day he decides that he is going to just stop. He is going to quit becoming Mr. Hyde. He decides that just by, just through sheer willpower, he will cure himself. And he's doing really well. I mean, he is walking the line for three months. It's been three months since he's been Mr. Hyde and he's sitting in the park and he's looking at all the people there and he begins to consider how well he's doing at being this really good disciplined person. And then he starts to think about how he's actually a much better person than most people in the world. And as he's having these sort of prideful thoughts of superiority, all of a sudden he looks down at his hand only to discover that he's not Dr. Jekyll anymore. He has once again turned into Mr. Hyde. You see, friends, the desires of the flesh are real powerful things, and try as we might, we can never fully suppress them on our own. There is a Mr. Hyde in you, and there is a Mr. Hyde in me, and he or she is dying to come out. So what do we do? Well, first, we must understand freedom differently because no one wants to be a slave to Mr. Hyde. Second, we must engage our desires intentionally. Behavior modification is not enough. The solution must go deeper. And third and finally, we must surrender our lives constantly. We must surrender our lives constantly. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To walk in the ancient world was a, a very commonly used metaphor for one's whole life. How are you walking? How are you living? How are you living every moment of every day? What does your constant existence look like? And so Paul says, walk by the Spirit constantly and consistently all the time, every day, be led and guided and filled by the Spirit. This is not a one-time thing, not a once a day, once a month, once a year moment. This is all all the time. This for Paul and for everyone who follows Christ according to him is a way of living and breathing. And we notice that he doesn't say walk by the Spirit and don't gratify the desires. No, he says if you walk by the Spirit, if you let the Spirit fill you and empower you and change you, then you will, you won't actually, you will Gratify the desires of the spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, he says, if you cultivate stronger and bigger and more powerful desires in your heart, the desires of the flesh will begin to die. And maybe a better word for desire is the word lust. 
Actually, in the New Testament, the word translated here, desire, is more literally translated lust. And the New Testament writers um, don't use it because when we think of lust, we think of sex. I know you're like really nervous to say that in church. Yes, when we think of lust, we think of sex. But lust is so much more than sex. There are so many things that we can and do lust after. You see, that's the call here. The call is dig real deep, look inside your mind and heart and try and figure out what is it that I desire? What is it that I am longing for, that I'm yearning for, that I am lusting after in this world? What is it that you're really pursuing? Because those desires, friends, are the desires that are driving your actions and your choices and your will. We must be in touch with the desires that are running through our minds and hearts. You see, a huge part of walking with the Spirit is knowing ourselves. It's looking past our behaviors and looking deep down into the things that drive us and motivate us, the things that we value, the things that we look to and pursue for security and satisfaction and fulfillment. You see, self-introspection and really knowing self is a big part of walking in the Spirit. Because when we know ourselves, when we know our desires, when we know the places where we attempted to lust after things of the flesh, things of this world, then we know where to ask the Spirit to do His work. We must invite the Spirit to do His work, not just on our behaviors, but in the deep bowels of our lives. Listen to how this is said in Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, I want to say right off the top here, this is not the power of positive thinking. This is not you are what you think, although thinking is part of this equation, and your thoughts are extremely important. But the word mind in the Bible could just as easily be translated heart because the Bible does not make a big distinction between the mind and the heart. In our world, in our American English world, the mind means the things we think, our reason, our cognition, but the heart means emotions and feelings, not in the Bible. Mind and heart in the scriptures are together and kind of simultaneous terms for the core of your being. You see, in For Paul, your emotions run through your mind. By the way, that's also scientifically true. So when he says mind, he's not just talking about thinking. This is not detached from emotion. This very much includes your emotions. So here's what he's saying. He's asking you to look at yourself and recognize what preoccupies you. What engrosses you the most? Where are your dreams? When you think about the life you want, what do you dream about? What has captured your imagination? Where do your fantasies tend to drift? What is your heart most consumed with? When there's time, when there's space, When there's a void, where do your thoughts float? What are you tempted to feel strongly about? How many of you have 
now, since it's out on Netflix again, rewatched The Lord of the Rings. Yes, a few of you. Me too. It's just as good now as it was when it came out. So good. I'm, I'm watching it again, though. I'm reminded and, and, and sort of struck again by the power of the ring to consume the mind, the heart, the life, the desires and passions and lusts of whoever possesses it. And the point of this book slash movie is certainly this. There's a ring out there for every single one of us. There's something in this world that you are tempted to lust after, to desire, to pursue, to look to for value and meaning and purpose. There's a ring out there for you and there's a ring out there for me. Do you know what your ring is? Do you know where the flesh is competing with the spirit for the desires of your mind and heart and life and soul. Friends, we must learn to surrender those things and those places constantly and consistently to the will of the spirit. This is why at the end of Galatians 5, Paul wraps up this whole conversation with these words. These are such powerful words. This is the action step for him. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We want no part of it. We want no part of those lusts, those desires that will move us away from God's will in our lives. Those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified. We've nailed those desires to the cross. Since we live by the Spirit, and then he says this, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. So what does it mean? What does it look like to crucify the desires of the flesh and to keep in step and to walk constantly and consistently with the Spirit? I will close with this. It's just one of my favorite illustrations that I've ever read. I think I shared it with you a few years back, but hear it again. Uh, The story goes that an old Cherokee man is teaching his grandson about life. And he says to him, there's a fight going on inside of me. It's a terrible fight and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He is Anger and envy and sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The grandfather continued, but the other is good. He is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. He says the same fight is going inside of you. It's the fight that's going on inside of every person in this world. The young grandson listening to his grandfather stopped, thought for just a minute about what he had heard and then asked this question. Grandfather, which wolf will win? Which wolf will win, the good wolf or the bad wolf? The old Cherokee man stopped, paused, looked longingly at his grandson and simply replied with these words, the one you feed. The one you feed. Are you feeding the desires of the flesh? Or are you walking in step with the Spirit?
Are you asking the Holy Spirit of God to come and fan into, the, into flame the desires of your heart that line up with the desires of Jesus and the desires of his Father? Where in your life are you feeding the wrong wolf? That's the question I want to leave you with today as we go to the table. And I guess I'll just encourage you with this. We come to this table, to this meal, to the Lord's Supper for two reasons. First, to find grace. First, to be reminded that our salvation does not hinge on our behaviors, on our will or our desires. It is not a situation where God is waiting to see if you can get your desires just right and lined up in just the right way, and if so, he will receive you. No, the declaration has been made. You are loved, you are received, you are accepted by God, and we come to this table to declare it once more, that through the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ, actually it was flipped, death and resurrection, we are sons and daughters. No one and nothing in this world can change that fact. But we also come to this table for strength, for encouragement, and to be reminded of the power that can live within us, the power that wants to fan into flame the desires of God in your heart. So take a moment. Think about your desires, the lusts of your heart, and when you're ready... Come to the table, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. You can receive the elements on your own and we will continue with a time of worship. But let me pray before we come. Father, as we come to the table today, we together as a church confess to you that there are desires of the flesh living inside of us that those desires play out in our lives in the form of actions and thoughts and words and feelings that don't bring glory or honor to you God we confess this to you uh, we also confess God that's, that it unintentionally we sometimes feed those fleshly desires sometimes Lord even intentionally we ask for your strength, for your power, for your grace. We ask that you would send another wave that we might get up again and by the power of your spirit fan into flame the desires of our heart that bring glory and honor to you. That is our desire. That is our declaration. We need your help. And may it be so, Lord, for your glory, for your honor, and to lift up the name that is above every name in the universe, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.